One of the benefits of preaching through books of the Bible like this is you get the opportunity to open up and study and expound upon words and phrases and topics that typically in your regular reading you just read right over. Or at least when you read them, they, they don't seem to be a part of the bulk or the meat of biblical doctrine. You know, we, we read through these salutations to get to the, the meat of the letter oftentimes forgetting or at least acting like it's not true that even a salutation is written under the inspiration of God. Another one of the benefits is that when words or phrases are like this are used in multiple books and you've already studied through one book that contains the same words and phrases, a lot of times you end up, uh, well, you get the opportunity to say some of the, a lot of the same things again. Uh, the last book of the Bible that we went through together was the Revelation. And Revelation 1 Verses 4 and 5, we read this. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Our text today is 1 Corinthians 1.3. Shorter, but still conveying the same idea. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of what, I've, what I'm going to say this morning, I've already said before in at least one sermon. But the subject matter that we find in these verses is actually so basic to Christianity that much of it I've said in many sermons. My hope as we walk through this verse is that you'll be able to see that there is essential Christian doctrine in places that we don't commonly tend to, to search for it. Almost every New Testament epistle contains this same greeting or something similar to it. It's so common that we don't give it much thought. And I think because we don't give it much thought, if you're like me, it's actually hard to articulate what's happening here. What Paul is doing as he more than likely dictates this and Sosthenes puts pen to paper all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We want to know what is he doing? Why, why does he begin every letter this way? Now, if you read the commentators, they'll say, well, this is, uh, follows closely in the form of a typical letter of this time period. Obviously, uh, non-Christians are not going to be writing grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But they, they'll say he's, he's following the typical pattern of a, a letter in his day. But if we believe that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have to assume that he's doing something more than just following a general pattern of, of letter writing. And so, and I, I hope that you'll be able to see that. So that's our, our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would suggest that this phrase, grace to you and peace, is a summary of the entirety of God's redemptive work for you and in you. That's what he's getting at. He's summarizing all of God's work for you and in you, for us and in, our, in, in us. So let's open up these words and their meaning. First is the word grace. Grace. If there were ever a Christian word or a term so foundational and essential to our faith that we speak of it every time we get together... We even have songs about it. Grace would be that word. We just, or we will sing, sing later. But th these are some of the songs that we sing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, I'm going I'm to read through some song lyrics. And as I was going through this, I realized that there are times when we, when we listen to somebody read a, a quote and we just kind of get anxious, like get to the end of the quote to get to the point. Here I'm reading these because the quotes are the point. Listen to the lyrics that we sing. If I were to judge by your faces what you thought about the grace that we just sang about, I would think that grace to you meant your, your, a near family member just died. Because as I was looking around and we were singing about the marvelous grace of God, we looked like a miserable bunch of people. Do you think about what you're singing when you sing? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. 
Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Or the one we just sang, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. You can't out-sin grace. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Here's another one that we've, we've not sung here before, but I know some of you have sung it. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching to all the lost. By it I have been pardoned, saved to the uttermost. Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most reviled by its transforming power, making me God's dear child, purchasing peace and heaven for all eternity. For the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. If you'll notice when we sing these songs, it's ironic. Whenever we talk about the grace of God in, in our songs, we give grace attributes and powers as if it were personified. Grace saved a wretch like me. Grace taught my heart to fear. Grace brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. Grace will pardon and cleanse within. Grace reaches to all the lost, pardons and saves to the uttermost, reaches to the most reviled. If there were ever a word that belonged exclusively to the Christians... It's grace. This is our word. Now, people use it. They, they, they you know, pour a bunch of water into it, dilute it, and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. But grace is our word. The word is charis. It's often translated as gift. And this is why you'll hear people say that grace is referred to as unmerited favor. But again, this grace is an attribute of God. It's not something that God does necessarily as much as it is something God is. It is a manifestation of God Himself to the creature. That's why we can say, grace saved a wretch like me. Who saved me? Well, God saved me. But it was God in grace. God manifesting Himself in this attribute called grace. You might hear people say grace is getting something you don't deserve or unmerited favor. And, and there is this aspect of grace that lends itself to the concept of the unmerited or the undeserved because the term relates to a gift. If you, if you earned it or you deserve it, it's not a gift. That's just payment. The idea here is it's a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You might say, well, it's my birthday, so everybody brings me gifts. But you didn't decide to be born on that day. You didn't earn that gift. It's not deserved. It's unmerited. But again, it is a manifest, manifestation of God Himself. It's God revealing something of Himself to a creature, even though we don't deserve it and we haven't earned it. So we could say that grace is that in God which disposes Him toward men in a manner contrary to what they deserve. Now when we say that it disposes God or that God is disposed, the word doesn't mean you, know, you throw your trash away, garbage disposal. It means to arrange or orient. A, a, a military uh, officer disposes his troops. He arranges them on the battlefield the way that he would have them to be. That's what we're talking about. When we, so we're talking about that which disposes God, something in God that orients Him toward the creature in a favorable and undeserved way. Now for a lot of people, if you tell them God is disposed towards you in a favorable way, well, they don't see the big deal. That's all they ever think about. That's all they know. They just assume that God is thrilled to death every time he sees them. But he's always been disposed towards them that way because they don't have any comprehension of their sin. 
They don't have any comprehension of God's holiness. They don't, they don't believe or at least bring their minds to settle down on the truth that they know about themselves. There's nothing in any of us that deserves a favorable orientation from even our peers. You know this. We, we've, Paul Washer says this. We know men. We know this about ourselves that if, if the people that were the closest to, to us knew the truth about us, inside of us, you wouldn't think favorably about me. But here, what we're talking about here is that God, who does know the real us inside, deep down, every, everything, He's disposed favorably toward us. That's grace. The Bible teaches that as sinners, we deserve God to be disposed towards us as judge and as executioner. Our hearts are darkened and hardened. Our minds are hostile. Our intentions are only evil continually. God is angry with the wicked. That is the unbeliever every day. And when we, when we quote texts like that, the, the, these general statements, hearts darkened, hardened, minds hostile, intentions evil. It's, it's easy to, like, to, to become okay with lumping ourselves in with everybody. All our hearts are dark and all our minds are hostile. All we're just, you know. We're, we're, but God knows the specific manifestations of that in you. He knows what your hardened and darkened heart has, has thought, has done. He knows the deeds that have been carried out by your hands. He knows the places where your feet have been. He knows the thoughts that have gone through your mind, the, the things that have passed through your eyeballs. He knows every bit of it. And, and because of that, we stand to be judged. He should be oriented towards us in, in pure, undiluted anger forever. We are by nature at enmity with God and He with us. But then here comes grace. Or we might say the God of grace. In grace, He's disposed to us contrary to that. Contrary to what we deserve by nature. It's the opposite of what we deserve by nature. In addition to that, in whichever way God is disposed toward the creature, whether for good or for bad, this always assumes action on God's part. We... we we ought never to imagine God sitting idle, just feeling. If you're in enmity with God, then God is after you. He is pursuing you as His enemy. His justice will not allow Him to just sit by and, and let you get away with sin. Now, He might not be pouring out His full wrath at the moment, but He is actively keeping records and, and laying up, the Bible says that we are treasuring up, if you're in sin, treasuring up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Well, who, who keeps that treasury? That's God. He's got the storehouse of, of your sins and His wrath that is to be prepared, or to be poured out upon you. God's doing that. He, he's never just sitting and, and stewing in anger like we can, we can often do. Sit still and we're angry but we don't show it. That's not God. He's always active, and, and the opposite is true with grace. If you're in God's grace, God's after you. But if you're in His grace, He's pursuing you as the object of His unmerited favor. He's coming after you. He's not just sitting back in the corner thinking good thoughts about you. He's, he's chasing you down. His power and His goodness and His love will not allow Him to just sit back and feel favorable. A disposition of grace from God issues forth in God's goodness and power and love flowing from God to the creature. For God to be disposed toward you in grace implies action on God's part. He's, he's got to show it. He's got to give it. He, and, he, and He is and He will so grace is God giving Himself to us, working in us, through us, and for us in order to do us good in spite of the fact that in ourselves we deserve Him to be after us for the very opposite. In ourselves, by nature, we deserve for Him to run us down for all of eternity and just empty out wrath. And that's what hell is. It's God coming after the sinner for eternity and wrath. That's what we deserve. But in grace, God is coming after us for all of eternity to give His goodness to us. That's grace. God 
working in us and doing for us that which we have not earned or deserved. It's, it's active. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. How, did, how do, would, would somebody know that Paul was the object of God's grace? Well, because he worked hard. Grace didn't make Paul lazy. Grace made him work harder than everybody else. Because it's, it's, and I think we understand this, what he's saying is it's by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that I'm able to do these things. It's God in me working, and that makes me not lazy, active. God working in and through the creature. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace. Through this attribute of God called grace, a great change takes place in our relationship to God. We go from what we are by nature, enemies of God, under His just retribution and condemnation, to then under God's grace in, with a new nature, recipients of God's Spirit working in us to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Now when you hear that, you might think, well, does God then change? Does, if God goes from disposed toward us in anger to dispose toward us in grace, does that imply that an alteration has taken place in God? The answer is always no. If anybody ever says, well, does such and such produce some kind of change in God? It can't be. It can't happen. There's no change in God. So then what happened? Well, the answer is we have changed. We're given a new nature in God's work of regeneration. So then you might ask, does that mean that God's grace toward us is in response to our change? God saw the change, and then grace comes in. The answer again is no. It's actually God's grace toward us that brings about the change. Consider a brief history of God's grace. First, Paul tells Timothy that God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So in eternity, God's grace was already toward us or, or upon us in the mediator, Christ Jesus, from eternity. Speaking of God's election... In eternity, in Romans eleven five, Paul says, "At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace." That this is descriptive of all of the elect of God, chosen by grace, which tells us that God's grace toward His elect began in eternity in the form of electing grace. It's always active. God didn't just feel gracious; He acted. His grace was shown. In election, electing grace. Then we read in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We come onto the scene of history and God's grace appears, delivering men salvation. That salvation that had been prepared in Christ Jesus before the world began and bestowed upon them in electing grace is now appearing in the person of Christ. We we move into New Testament times. And I say that because we, we understand the salvation that is in Christ began from the very beginning. All, all who've been saved have been saved in Christ. That was the, the, the grace of God appearing, bringing salvation to all men through Christ. That worked for Adam and Eve. Same, same grace. When we come into the New Testament, Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, there was a grace that was prepared beforehand that belonged to the New Testament saints and the prophets were prophesying about this saving grace because they knew it was going to come upon saints who were still to come. Describing his own salvation, Paul says in Galatians 1.15, that he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace. That's the effectual call of God in our salvation. It's an act of grace. Grace begins in eternity. Grace is seen in electing grace. Grace 
appears bringing salvation. Grace is prepared and prophesied. Grace is manifest in the effectual call and salvation. In Ephesians, Paul says, When we were dead in our trespasses, speaking of God, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now he's going to say it again later, and I think the, the point in, in all of this is all of salvation is a work of God's grace. But right here he says, He made us alive. He, he brought us to life. That's, that would go in, under the heading of regeneration. He brought us from death to life. And then he just stops. By grace you have been saved. And, and the saved there is specifically tied to regeneration. That grace has come bringing you from death to life. We're, we're regenerated by grace. As we grow as saints, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, we may abound in every good work. So if we asked, once a Christian is born again, what does grace look like in their life? Well, it's all sufficiency in all things at all times. Now, if you look at yourself, you say, that doesn't seem like what I have. Remember, this is an attribute that can only be attributed to God. Only God is all sufficiency for all things at all times. But God working in the believer provides us with that sufficiency. And then from Peter, we hear these words, 1 Peter 1.13, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's grace still to come. We're, we're looking forward to more grace. Grace begins in eternity. It's manifested in election. It appears bringing salvation. It's prepared and then prophesied about. It comes in our effectual calling. It comes in regeneration. It comes in all sufficiency in all times, in all, in all things. And we've still got more to look forward to. We're still waiting for more grace. Is God's grace toward us? His response to our change? No, God's grace, because it is an attribute of God, we have to trace it all the way back into the eternal God Himself before the ages began. It precedes all things, works in all things, carries us through all things, and even waits for us in the eternal state forever. Grace is God from eternity and in time and into eternity, giving Himself to work for in and through us to save us, to sanctify us, to glorify us. This is why often you'll hear the term used to describe our, our type of theology, sovereign grace theology. We believe in sovereign grace. Well, only God is sovereign, exactly. And He's the God of grace. The eternal, omnipotent, unstoppable God coming after His people for our good, even though in ourselves we deserve wrath. And as we read, this grace is most clearly manifest to us in the coming of Jesus Christ. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus. Grace is not dependent upon us Grace is contingent upon Christ Jesus and His undertaking for us in the covenant of redemption. Because Christ agreed to the terms, Christ being God in Himself, then the terms are as good as satisfied from eternity. And therefore God can from eternity already begin to manifest and work out this grace in electing grace. Because of the work of Christ enduring the curse for sin in our place, which put us at enmity with God, or, or because of Christ's work, the enmity has been put aside. God's grace is manifest in Christ. Then God can be eternally gracious. Because we are creatures of time, born in sin, then prior to our salvation, we are truly under God's just condemnation. You see the, 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 I don't know if it's a dichotomy, the conundrum. God's grace manifested from eternity. And yet, when we're born in time, we're born under God's wrath. You say, well, that's confusing. Not confusing to God. Leave salvation up to God. This is grace. 
the sovereign, omnipotent, eternal God giving Himself to us to save us in spite of what our sins deserve on account of what Jesus Christ has done in our place. Now the second word is peace, which is a little more simple, or at least I'm going to give it less attention. But again, I would say that this, this is a term exclusive to Christians. This is our word. The world talks about peace, strives after peace, boasts of finding peace, but every one of us, if you talk to a worldling for five minutes, you know that it's not so. They don't have peace anywhere. They're not at peace with themselves. They're not at peace with their peers. They're not at peace in their minds, their hearts, their bodies, their jobs. They're not at peace. Worst of all, they have no peace with God. Practically speaking, the entire basis for the growth and advancement of human society is a manifestation of the reality that men are not at peace with themselves. And so they spend their lives striving to find in the world what only God can give. Now, we say, well, that, that keeps the world going. Yeah, God can, God can turn their sin even to His own purposes, His own usefulness. But that's what, that was what we see around us. What, 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 what motivates entrepreneurship in, in, in lost men? What, what motivates... Um, charity and things like that in lost men. It's, it's that they're not at peace, that they're trying to do something to bring a happiness to themselves, to find some sort of fulfillment in something that they can do. They're not at peace. The word peace is and When we think of peace, typically we think of the absence of war or strife or disorder. But biblical peace is not just a negation of war or strife or disarray like we might say these, these two armies, they came to a peace treaty. What does that mean? Well, they agreed not to blow each other up, but they're not hanging out together. They're not really at peace. Uh, if two parents are arguing, mom goes to one end of the house and dad goes to the other end of the house and everything's quiet. There's no peace in that home. It's quiet, but they're not at, that's not peace. The the biblical notion of peace is positive. It's a positive state of harmony, unity, agreement. It's, it's peace with God, harmony with God, being in agreement or fellowship with God, a state of happy agreement between us and God. That's peace. Now, what do these words have to do with each other? They're always together, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace to you and peace. Why? I don't think it's hard to understand at this point. God or grace, is sovereign, omnipotent, eternal God giving Himself to us to save us in spite of what our sins deserve on account of what Jesus Christ has done in our place. Christ's work has abolished the enmity between us and God. That's good news. God, God is not at enmity with us. But beyond that, Christ has so fully pleased the Father... And the Spirit has so truly united us to Christ the Son that God hasn't simply agreed not to destroy us. He's pleased with and delighted in us. There's true peace, harmony between us and God. We, we don't have to fear to walk around every corner that God's just waiting to, to harm us. Or, or even imagine that, well... Maybe he's not going to destroy me, but he's still sitting over there pretty doggone upset at me. Now that's, our, our standing with God has been settled in Christ. Christ's work and God's grace in you is in order to bring you to a state of peace with him and he with you. There's peace. And we're talking, I'll, I'll talk more about this in a minute, objectively, and, and we'll see later on about sin. I don't want you to think that what I'm saying is if I sin... God is happy with what I've done. That's not what we're saying. But in Christ, because of what Christ has done, God is pleased. God, we are at peace and at harmony with God. So then what's Paul doing when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Why does he, why does he say this? Well, we see in, in the phrase that the grace and the peace is from the Father and the Son. We know that this grace and this peace comes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have effectively the entire... Holy Trinity coming in and, and giving this statement to the Corinthians. What's, what's Paul doing? 
Or we could say, what is the Holy Spirit doing through Paul when he writes this? Well, imagine that you've, you've greatly offended somebody and you know that you're about to see them for the first time since you have greatly offended them. And you, you've prepared in your mind what you're going to say to offer up an apology. But before you're able to even offer up a sufficient apology, they hold out their hand and they say, stop, don't say a word. The offense is gone. It's forgotten. We're on good terms. Just forget it. We'll move on like it never happened. That's kind of the picture here. Here is this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who we have greatly offended with our sin. Not only have we offended Him in the past, but we still accumulate sins for ourselves on a regular basis. We still carry out many crimes against His holy character regularly. And yet, every time He greets His people, He starts the conversation with grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. The image that kept coming to my mind was Christ after the resurrection. You know, the last time the disciples saw Him, they fled. They left Him. And then He shows up and He says, Peace, don't, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. There's no hostility here. It's peace. It's harmony. It's friendship. God is declaring the terms of the relationship from the outset. He's establishing the grounds upon which the whole interaction is to be received. The whole letter, all of God's dealing with His people is, is to be received on this foundation. Grace to you and peace. Because of my grace manifested in Christ Jesus, because of what my Son has done and because you are united to His Son, we're at peace. And from that angle, we should then receive the things He teaches us. He says in His Word, He's declaring a peace treaty built on the foundation of His own grace. He's saying, before I go any further, I want you to know that because of my grace in Christ Jesus, we are at peace. Grace always leads to peace, harmony and fellowship with God. Grace to you and peace is a summary of the entirety of God's redemptive work for you and in you. As I said, if we trace the history of grace, we see it beginning in eternity, coming in time, manifesting itself in our own salvation, working through our sanctification, and then even hoping for more to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Always, this is the whole picture, and we see the end of the picture in Revelation 21 when we read that the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they'll be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, if you think about these things... Tears and death and mourning and crying and pain, that's not God's fault. Those are the things that came into the world because of our sin. Those wouldn't be there if mankind had not sinned. God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to wipe away all of this stuff that you introduced into my world and I'm just going to live with you forever. That's the end goal, a full apprehension of peace as God dwells with men. Right now we read it in epistles. We read grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. The grace of God has appeared. The grace, we, we read it. And we, and, and we feel like, I need to go read it again. I need to, I, because it's hard to believe. The grace has come that we are at peace with God. The, the apprehension that we have right now of this grace bringing us to peace, we take by faith. We have to take by faith. In the eternal state, we'll simply see it. We'll, we'll know it. We won't be taking it by faith. We will recognize this God is at peace with me. And I am at peace with Him forever. How do we know that? Because He's dwelling with us. He, he's willing to come and dwell with us again. The God who once repelled mankind from His presence has declared from eternity that He would repair the breach made by sin in the person of His own Son and would return to this harmonious dwelling with us as our God. God's aim is peace. It's always been peace. We sinned. He came and offered the terms. We ran from Him. We didn't believe Him. He came to us. That's what He wants is peace. He's offering terms of peace. If you think of two armies 
the mightiest army the world has ever known against you and your buddies in the back of a pickup truck. And you're going to destroy each other. But this army says, listen, we'll come to terms. We've got, we'll, we'll make peace. We won't destroy you. How foolish would it be to say, no, let's do this. How prideful is that? How arrogant is that? It's foolish. God's aim is peace. We see this from eternity. God set Himself to manifest His grace, to bring us to be at peace with Him. Another biblical term that's synonymous with this idea of peace is reconciliation. Reconciliation addresses this notion of being brought back into harmony with God. The great work of all of human history and redemption is to reconcile guilty sinners with the God that they have offended. Adam and Eve sin. Who's the first one that shows up after they sin? God shows up. They run and hide. Why, why are you running? Why are you hiding? Well, they recognize their sin. They understood they, they, they should uh, be in fear for this God. But, but He doesn't say, I'll give you to the count of ten. And you better run and you better not stop running and you better not look back because I'm coming after you. He doesn't say that. He clothes them. He takes care of them. He makes them a promise. I'm going I'm to abolish all of this in my son. God's aim is peace. While this peace is worked out in different ways in our lives, the primary meaning here, I think, is, is what we would call objective peace. Objective re- reconciliation has been secured in Christ, and we have to understand this. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. Reconciled in Christ. Verse 19, In Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself. That's what He did. He accomplished that in Christ. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace is settled. The peace is, it's, it's been made. The reconciliation has taken place. And in this sense, the work required for peace is accomplished so that in Christ Jesus, for all who are in Christ Jesus, there is perfect harmony with God for all who believe. He's declaring this to us. Grace to you and peace. And we would be foolish to not read the rest of the epistle that way. This is coming from a God who in in His own Son reconciled us to Himself and He wants to bring us to peace with Him. Now that objective peace leads to and manifests itself throughout our lives in what we might call subjective peace. We are in a moment reconciled to God. Objectively, we might say legally we we are set at peace with God, but there is still that in us for the rest of our lives which is not at peace with God. Epistles like this, when we read them, that's what God's doing. I want to, God is saying, uh, I've noticed through the apostle, I've noticed these six things in this church. I did this. This is six. These six things in this church where, where my peace is not being, you're not experiencing it. You're not at peace with me here. So correct this and you'll be at peace with me in that area. Here's another one. You're not at peace with me here. Correct this. And we'll be at peace in that area. This is what God's doing throughout our lives because we have in us that which is not at peace with Him subjectively. So a few applications from this idea of grace and peace. The first one is note the kindness of God. Take note of the kindness of God that though we often forget or doubt, He reminds us of His grace which has brought us peace. We struggle to believe that we are at peace with God. God doesn't struggle to believe it. God's convinced we are at peace. He looks at His Son. He looks at the man of His right hand and He says, the intercessor is here. The high priest is here. The blood's been brought in. We're at peace. But we struggle to believe it. We struggle to comprehend this. But throughout the Scriptures, we see God coming to those who are His and bringing them these consolations to set them at peace. God doesn't doubt the peace. God doesn't lack assurance of grace which leads to peace. God, if you're a Christian, God doesn't lack assurance of your salvation. That's on us. We struggle with that. So what does God do? Well, He comes just like He does here. He gives us these consolations. Psalm 94, 19 says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. 
What do we need? We need God's consolations. That's what puts us at peace. How often when our children are afraid, do we wish that they would simply come to terms with the fact that we, their parents, will protect them and take care of them? They're hurt. Maybe they they saw blood or something has happened. They've been frightened. You're trying to get them to calm down and you're saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. What you're saying is, I want you to look at the serenity of my countenance. Look at me and see. I'm not freaking out. Therefore, you should be able to calm down. It's going to be okay. When a, when a little baby falls and, and you, you recognize that could possibly hurt, they're going to look at you. Now, if you do this, <gasps> well, they're gonna, they're, they, they get scared. But if you say, yay, well, they, they, just, they, they think they did something great. They're, they're put at ease by the way that you respond. We do this with our children. Why do we do that? Because in love, we want them to know you can rest. It's going to be okay. Calm down. It's not as bad as you think it is. Look at me. Look at me. Calm down. In a similar and yet much greater way, we see over and over in the Scriptures, this same God that we have sinned against coming to us and effectively taking us in His arms and saying, look at me. Look what I've done. Behold the serenity of my countenance. My countenance, my, the, the glory of my face shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Behold me. You and I are on good terms. The debt's settled. The Prince of Peace has settled the accounts. Rest. Again, we don't, we're, I'm not saying we should be at peace with sin. We'll get to that. But note the kindness of God. In love, He wants us to come to a full assurance of this truth, that His grace is at work in us and has put us at peace and that we will obtain peace in the end. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep Him at perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. We need to fix our minds on the God of peace. Settle on Him. When you settle your attention on God, you'll trust in Him. You can't study this Bible about this God and not come to trust Him. Not, not learn that he's, that he's trustworthy, because He is. That's what you're going to see from the beginning to the end. Trustworthy, faithful. We learn more and more of His amazing grace, and we find this experiential peace that He desires us to have. He's a kind God. He doesn't save us and then leave us to sort of flail on our own, knowing in the back of His mind that in glory He'll... He'll assure us that everything's fine. No, He wants us to realize that now. He wants to live in that kind of subjective peace now. So just take note of how kind God has been to us. Second, notice or note the reason for a lack of felt or experiential peace with God. Note the reason for a lack of felt or experiential peace with God. It is true that often we who have received this grace, which leads to objective peace with God, fail to live in the experiential knowledge of it. We don't feel at peace. We feel unsettled and anxious as if we were in some way still at enmity with God. What's the reason? Why is that? I think... The predominant answer is because we still give regular vent to the actings of our flesh which will never be at peace with God. In short, it's because we sin. Sin is opposed to grace. If you're going to be a child of God and sin, of course you're not going to feel like you're at peace. You're living out that which is opposed to God. Our remaining fleshly lusts will never be at peace with God. God's work of grace in us is not to reform our lusts, but to kill them, to put them to death. And so when we give vent to those lusts, that is when we sin, we're lured and enticed by our own desires, we're actively living out that which cannot be reconciled to God. As Christians, if this is true of us, yes, we do have objective peace with Christ, but we forfeit the felt joy of peace with God when we live in ways that are contrary to Him. 
If you don't feel like you're at peace with God, if you're not experiencing felt peace with God, it's probably because of some sin, some uh, habit or pattern of sin. Sin clouds our view of past grace, and that leads us to doubt whether we've ever been saved or not. How could I do that? You know, I don't, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. Or it chokes out present grace and again leads us to doubt whether we're saved at all because we recognize if this is inconsistent with our nature. It's only when we put the grace of God to work that we begin to discover the peace with God that is ours. We cannot at one and the same time live in ways that are criminal toward God and also enjoy peace with Him. It doesn't work that way. Why don't we enjoy peace or the peace that we have? Because we sin. In action, in thought, our general demeanor and perspective on the world. Your your conscience is not clear. And God knows it. God can see your conscience and therefore there's no peace with God. No felt peace. That's the reason why we... We lack the experience of what is true. Thirdly, peace with God is not the same as peace with the world. Jesus famously said in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There's a contrast. There's in me and there's in the world. In me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Living at peace with God in Christ will often lead to greater tribulation or enmity with the world. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about persecution, but just dissatisfaction with the difficulties of living in this world. When, when we become new creatures in Christ, we are, given, we, we, we are given an impartation of the Holy Spirit, which is eternal life. Our, our citizenship is in heaven. That, that's, that's, our, our souls immediately begin to be drawn to heaven. So, the things of this world that are not heavenly create a tension in us and we experience them. And again, the more that we strive for peace with God in Christ, this subjective peace, we're putting away sin and things like that, we're pursuing holiness and godliness, the more that we do that, the more we're going to find ourselves not at peace with the world. And Again, I'm not just talking about those people are wicked sinners and, I, and, and I'm not. What I'm saying is just the, the whole scheme of things. We recognize it's not how, it, how it's supposed to be. And we begin to look forward to the time when it's not the way it is. So here's what we often do. Walking with God, living in obedience to God, begins to produce some anxiety or stress or hardship or trial, some tension between us and the world. Let's, let's put it very, very basic. Reading my Bible puts me at tension with, I want to sleep in the morning. Very basic. I don't want us to think of this in terms of just, you know, the, the outwardly debauched. Getting up early and spending time in the Word of God creates this tension within me. When my alarm goes off, I recognize I don't want to do that. And even, it's not just physical. There's more to it than that. We're deciding in our inner being, I don't want that. I want this. Godliness exposes this tension. But here's what we do. In order to relieve or, or relax that tension, we cave in in the area of obedience. In other words, we, we give in to the lust of the flesh. We, we give in to the drawing of the world. That relaxes the tension. <sighs> but that's not who we are. We say, obeying God is creating some stress in my life, some tension. So I'm going to take a day or, or an hour, a couple hours for some me time. I'm going to live at peace with the world. That is myself, my flesh. And then... After I give myself to this thing, after I, after I relax a little bit here or there, then I'll be rested up and I'll be ready to return full strength to obeying God. That, that's insane. That, that don't work. Like dolphins who come up for oxygen, we come up for sinful pleasure, 
thinking that that is going to prepare us to go down deeper and longer with God the next time. Because we feel this tension, right? What we forget, if you're a Christian, your nature has been changed. You're not a dolphin. You're like a deep sea creature. You thrive the further down and darker you go. Coming up is the last thing that you need to do. You need to go down, 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 down. The answer to this tension in the world is never to give in and return to some sort of manufactured peace with the world of the flesh for a short time. The answer is to take further refuge in the God of all peace. The answer is to go deeper in seeking peace with God through His grace working in you. The answer is to mortify that flesh. Kill it. Next time it won't bother you if you kill it. The tension goes away. You kill it. You say, well, that's, that's going to make me somewhat of a strange creature. Exactly. Exactly. Resolve to serve Him more. When you feel that tension, get on your knees. Mortify that flesh. Put it to death. Stop it. It's got to die. You're not helping yourself by relaxing the tension in the other direction. You've got to cut it. In our flesh, we often tend to think that excessive godliness is what is creating inner turmoil. But that's only true for the hypocrite who's trying to be something that they're not. For the Christian, inner turmoil or lack of peace is because of too little godliness. You're not going far enough. You're not pushing hard enough. You're not striving far enough. You're trying to walk a tightrope that was never meant to be walked. Again, you're like a deep sea creature who says, I'm going to go up and see how that oxygen does me for a few minutes. The overall remedy for lack of this subjective experiential peace is to return over and over again to the object of peace that has been obtained in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been settled. We have it. The reason that we don't walk in it, experience it, feel it, however you want to describe that thing, it's not, it's not God's fault. The, the reconciliation has been made. We have the peace. It's free for the taking. All the peace you can ever feel, experience, all the joy you've ever wanted, it's free. We are the ones who think, well, if I go too far, well, then it's just going to it's gonna stretch me too thin. It's going to be too much tension. No, it's not. You'll be at peace. Where? You'll be at peace in Christ. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but that'll be okay because you're at peace in Christ. When all of the world, or what in all of the world, could throw me off course if this is true? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. What could drain me of my joy if that's true? What could cause my soul to be cast down within me if I have peace with God? Again, not merely that God and I are on speaking terms, but that God Himself is oriented toward me to do me good, to use every circumstance in life to make me more and more holy so that He can reveal more of Himself to me. That's what God's doing. If, if God has said grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, then surely we should have peace in the world. If we don't have it, it's our fault. We're not striving after it hard enough because we've, we, we, we get our, our, our wires crossed. Let's pray that God would, would help us to do this.